Two things before diving into this podcast. First, this is my 100th episode of Chats Into the Sun. And I'm so grateful to you who are listening, who have listened, and some of you who've been here since episode one. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Second, I've never monetized anything with Chats Into the Sun. And frankly, I don't want to. But I'm faced with the reality that it always has and always will cost money to record regular episodes. I just did the math and I've spent over $700 in gas just going to and from people's houses to record. All that to say, I started a Buy Me A Coffee page at buymeacoffee.com slash chats into the sun. And the logic goes something like this. I don't think this podcast is worth paywall or $10 a month subscription, but it's possible that maybe an episode or two was valuable enough to you that it might be worth a coffee or two. If this is you, I'd be thrilled if you'd head over to that page, more details at the end of the episode, and made a small donation. But right now, you're listening to Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Valk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is so fun. I'm, I'm really stoked that you guys are here. Um, really stoked for all of the people who came and are willing to tell their stories. Like this is, this is going to be a really, uh, really good night. So I was thinking about how to intro this. I have a document on my phone that I write down like business ideas or like ideas that I want to like work on in the future. And I was scrolling through it for completely unrelated reasons earlier this week. And I came upon a set of entries, which I thought I'd read to you guys. April 21, 2017. A dating app for Dutch people to eliminate the ones that they're related to. (laughs) (laughs) Not not a bad idea, honestly. Uh, November 18, 2017. Start a line of ginger candles and call it soulless candles. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> and November 23, 2017, a portable podcast where I make a podcasting station or table with camera and mics that I can bring to places and talk with people. Now it's 2017, nearly four years later, I sat down with Owen, March 29, 2021, for a podcast called uh, Swearing, Anti-Porn Ministry, and Difficult Books with Owen Hebert. And so Owen's here. You are a gem. I'm really grateful for you for all of the different times we've gotten to sit down and talk over the years. And I'm very grateful for this podcast because it's given me the opportunity to have conversations I would have never had otherwise. And so all of you guys have been a part of that to some degree, and I'm stoked about it. So the first story we have today. Derek Slingerland, 
super you so both you and scott we should start off with this because scott's coming on a bit later you guys know you are legendary in the Niagara region. <laughs> Legendary. When the, when the topic of storytelling comes up, you guys are some of the people that come up all the time. And so very grateful you guys are here to talk um, or to tell some of your stories. So Derek, would you give me a quick, quick bio of yourself, like what, what you're up to? And then tell me maybe an outline of what story you're going you're gonna to start with today. Well, I, um, so I live five minutes down the road from here uh, with my wife, Val, who's sitting beside me. We have five kids. And uh, I grew up actually in your backyard. Yep. And uh, so it's funny. We, um, I was racking my brain. And you probably I, should explain how you grew up in my backyard because that's a bit awesome. So the farm that the Volks own is, surrounds my parents' property on all three sides. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> but it wasn't always the case. Um, there was a time when the Volks didn't live here, and that's what I'll be telling my story about. But I have some other little... Actually, so I wrote a book. I'm writing a book, and uh, so I just want to read to you a chapter of the book, but I, I didn't want to just delve right into the book. Um, I wanted to preface it with uh, another story, and um, is that time for that now? Yeah, go okay. for it. Go for it. I want to hear about it. Um, so there's something unique about the property that you live on, and it has a certain history to it, and um, so just... I started digging into the property that I live on currently, which is on Pelham Road, about five minutes from here. And uh, I looked into uh, who owned it prior to us. And if you go back far enough um, to the late 1800s, there was a man named John Brown. And he was an empire loyalist that, um, because of his allegiance to Britain, he ended up moving to Canada. Um, <clears throat> after the War of Independence, and he was given 900 acres of land, and that includes my property. Um, his house sits uh, maybe half a kilometer down the road. It's the second house over from us. There's a big sign that says the John Brown House. Uh, John Brown ended up becoming um, a real, uh, like a businessman. He was a big personality in St. Catharines, and um, <clears throat> he actually ended up... Uh, working on the Welland Canal. He ended up um, owning a bunch of hotels in um, Niagara Falls. And then he also ended up hosting um, all the officers that were fighting in the Battle of 1812 at his house uh, down the road from us. <clears throat> but the best part of John Brown is that after the War of 1812, there was, um, there was a real lack of tourists coming to Niagara Falls. Most of the tourists were coming from, the, from Great Britain and because of the conflict with the United States at the time, the tourism just dried up. So in an effort to get more people to come to his hotel in Niagara Falls, he hashed a plane with several other uh, hotel owners at the time. And his plane was this. He got an old schooner. It was an old battleship that they had converted during, during the war and now was decommissioned. They stripped all the cannons and guns off it, and they were going to launch it off Niagara Falls. <laughs> so they got thousands of tourists to come and everyone wanted to watch the spectacle. And they, um, at the time, they weren't diverting water out of Niagara Falls. Um, so the, the river was actually like way, way deeper. They think it was probably 18 feet deep going over the brink of the falls. So John Brown and some of the other hotel owners at the time literally thought the ship was just going to sail 
right side up and just teeter over the edge and drop straight down and everyone will watch it. Um, and then I, I don't remember the character's name, but he was another hotel owner and a friend of John Brown. He said, why don't we make this better? We're going to fill up the boat full of animals. <laughs> so what they did <clears throat> is they got uh, an old wolf, two black bears, and a bison. <laughs> now, the bison apparently was on death's door already. Like, it was one foot in the grave, another foot on a banana peel. So they thought, if it dies, it dies. And they actually thought all the other animals were going to survive. <clears throat> so they, they tied the bison to the mast of the ship. <clears throat> and thousands of people came out to watch. And unfortunately, the ship didn't make it to the brink of the falls. It hit a bunch of rocks, and the wooden boat just broke in a million pieces. And uh, they ne the bison was never seen again. The wolves were never seen again. The bears actually made it to shore. And I've read two different accounts on it. Some say they swam to Goat Island, but others say that the bears actually ran through the crowds of people that were watching. <laughs> so it must have been quite the spectacle. <clears throat> Anyway, so I, my property, I look back at it and I think, wow, John Brown, this is part of our heritage. This is where we're growing up, raising my family. And then, um, and then I look back at your farm and um, what happened here prior to, to the Volks buying it. And it, was not, it wasn't glorious. It was no, <laughs> there was no John Browns living here. There was no hosting the soldiers of the war from 1812. No one here worked on the Welland Canal. Uh, in fact, it was, it was pretty unglorious. Anyways, I have a chapter in my book here that I've devoted uh, to the character that was living here. <clears throat> now, for the sake of privacy, I've, I've changed his name. Because <laughs> um, it's not really that flattering of a story. But anyways, <laughs> I find that this story is better read. So I'm just going to read straight out of my book. Go for it. So currently my folks live in their granny suite, recently built on their old homestead. That home sits in a bucolic little valley, surrounded by farmland owned by Eric and Christine Valk. This was not always the case, though. Years ago, that farm that envelops their home on all three sides was owned by perhaps the largest redneck in all of Ontario, and arguably the worst neighbor anyone could ever have. His name was Rick Lehman. Mr. Lehman was, I think, a postal worker, but I don't remember him ever going to work. Perhaps he took an early retirement or got laid off. I don't really know. He did always wear his old uniform, and I can't recall seeing him in anything other than his navy pants and pastel blue button-up shirt. Mr. Lehman was also a homesteader, living off the produce of his farm. He and his son, Danny, were both very scrawny and had a malnourished look to them, which tells you the caliber of farmer that he was. <laughs> Strangely enough, Mrs. Lehman was a woman of generous proportions. <laughs> the farm was a zoo of ducks and chickens, turkeys, cats, dogs, goats, sheep, cows, and horses. Some of them in cages or stalls, but most of them on the loose. Most of the cats had mange, the rabbits had blisters around their eyes, and the roosters had pecked most of the hens bald. The Lehman's house was a shack. 
It was a one-and-a-half-story house with painted wood siding, much of which had rotten and fallen off. There had been a chimney fire that spread to the roof, leaving a gaping hole by the time the fire department got it under control. Rather than repair it, Lehman and his wife closed the door to the upstairs bedroom and moved into the living room. The house drew its water from an old concrete cistern behind the house. The cistern developed some cracks, which provided opportunity for tree roots to invade the space. The roots eventually grew into the impellers of the submersible pump and seized the motor, which meant that Lehman or Danny, his son, would have to use a rope and a bucket to get water for the house. In order to mitigate the damage, the redneck took a chainsaw to the tree. It fell sideways and landed against the house, where it remained for years. <laughs> the yard around the house looked like a metal recycling yard, with tall weeds growing in between broken-down farm implements and wild farm animals milling about. Mr. Lehman's son, Danny, was a kleptomaniac who had stolen hundreds of bikes and skateboards. He had plans to fix them up and sell them for a profit, but until he got around to it, he left them hidden in the long grass throughout the property. Long before YouTube and Netflix, when TV was restricted to the six grainy channels you could pick up with the old rabbit ear antennas, Mr. Lehman got the largest satellite dish on the market. Danny bragged about, how, about the 400 channels they could get and how he and his dad had seen every WWF wrestling event that had ever happened. Every election year, the Lehmans would get a giant orange sign for the new Democratic Party. Now, I'm not telling you how you should vote, but I will say that I sit pretty solidly on the more conservative side of the political spectrum because of this man. <laughs> when I was really young, I was terrified of Mr. Lehman. He had a very fake glass eye that creeped me out as a kid. He had yelled at me once for getting too close to his horses. My best childhood friend and neighbor, Neil, felt the same way. We hatched a plan to retaliate. We snuck over to his old tractor parked in the field behind my house and broke the speedometer and the gas gauge with a rock. He came out and started yelling more. Sweat ran down his forehead and wicked through his pastel blue postal worker shirt. His glass eye seemingly scanned the horizon as he yelled, and it was hard to tell if he was yelling at me or Neil or someone a few hundred kilometers behind us. <laughs> the following day, we took turns peeing on his tractor seat. Danny, Mr. Lehman's son, was often in trouble at school. He was a few years older than me, and my parents were always a little hesitant about us spending time together. He had a menacing look to him. He strutted around the farm in the summer in skin-tight, dirty jeans without a shirt on. His hair spiked in the front and three racing stripes shaved into the sides, and a dirty rat tail trailing between his pokey shoulder blades. His intelligence was quite limited. His parents... <laughs> His parents had a laissez-faire attitude about his issues. Let's face it, Mr. Lehman would confide to my mom, Danny is never going to be a rocket scientist. In those days, what went on at the Lehman farm was always a mystery to me. One night, Neil and I decided to find out. Because we were very, still very afraid of Mr. Lehman, we would have to spy on them. We donned our camouflage clothes. We gathered up our nail guns. Broken hockey sticks with bungee cords fastened to the ends that could fling bent nails at high velocities with an astonishing degree of accuracy. <laughs> we prayed that we would never have to use them. 
We crawled through the long grass, approaching the farm, navigating the minefield of stolen bikes and broken farm equipment. The chickens eyed us warily, the goat suspiciously, a cow mooed in the distance. We inched up to the window of the shack. I gripped the rotted cedar windowsill and pulled myself up and peered in. It was the weirdest thing I had seen in my entire childhood. All three Lehmans were sitting in nothing but their underwear, <laughs> watching WWF wrestling. Just as the Hulk Hogan was about to body slam his opponent, a horse neighed. Mr. Lehman sat up and looked at Mrs. Lehman. He got up and walked over to the window as we dove out of sight in, into some bushes. Old Lehman put on a pair of pants and walked to the side door that faced the barn. The door creaked open as he stared into the darkness. All was quiet on the farm except for the pounding of our hearts. The scrawny man shut the door and went back inside. Relief swept over us like the fog that blanketed the night. We watched now from a distance as he sauntered back to the TV room. Old Lehman undid his button and his pants dropped to the floor. <laughs> he stood for a moment in his whitey tighties as the Hulk slammed the multiple wrestlers to the mat before plopping back down on the couch. <clears throat> as the years went by and I grew up more, I was no longer afraid of the Lehmans. I'm sure Danny was still trouble, but he was never a problem to us. He actually taught us to ride his horse. Mr. Lehman was no longer mad about the tractor, but he did like to remind us about it often enough. He came around the house often to talk with Dad. His favorite time to come over was when we were filling the pool every spring. He always pulled out the same joke year after year. Water looks real nice there, Ralph. I should bring my horses down for a bath. <laughs> then he would tell Dad about all the wonderful things that the NDP, the NDP was going to do. Mom would come out and try to change the subject. Hi, Richard, how are you doing? And how is Danny doing at school this year? Well, he would reply, Danny's still at ABC school. Don't expect him to be do, doing any of those brain surgeries anytime soon. <clears throat> On one occasion, Dad must have been desperate because we walked over to the farm to borrow something. We came up the horse track to the back of the barn where the redneck was tinkering with something. Mr. Lehman showed us the tree on the side of the house that erected his pump. Two dogs were fighting over a big, gnarly bone. Lehman was trying to explain why the tree had fallen the wrong way, but he was getting drowned out by the dog snarls. As the fight intensified, Lehman lost his patience and snatched the bone. He held it high above his head while the dogs whined and jumped. Realizing he couldn't hold it up for too long, he cocked his arm and threw it up onto the roof of the house. It landed in between the peak and the hole burned around this chimney. The bone literally stayed up there for years. <clears throat> Dad was about to say something about it when a huge goat jumped onto the hood of the car. The billy's hooves the, dimpled the metal as it proceeded to jump onto the roof. The goat stared down at us, lazily chewing some hay. A second goat scampered up top, buckling in the roof and causing more dents. Do you think maybe those goats shouldn't be up there? Dad asked. Nothing I can do about it, Lehman answered. Sometimes I swear those things is part mountain goat. <laughs> it has often been said that good fences make good neighbors. Richard Lehman had built the lousiest fences I had ever seen. <laughs> My dad could tolerate all the weird hick shenanigans that went on around the farm, but constantly dealing with Lehman's escaped livestock was often too much for him. Many times, one could pull into the driveway around the corner to the front of our house 
And if the garage door was open, there might be a dozen ugly white turkeys roosting on the bikes and pooping on the lawnmower. But it was the larger hooved animals that were the most menacing. Lehman built his fences with cedar posts that were often so rotten, the termites found them uninhabitable. The cross sections consisted of long metal pipes, a top and a bottom, lashed to the posts with old binder twine. Any animal weighing over 100 pounds could lean up against it and knock over 60 feet of it. If it wasn't so ugly, you would assume it was only for show. And so it was that the hooved mammals basically had free range of the bucolic little valley. Often at night, we would see flashlights in the vineyard, <coughs> out back or in the cornfield out front. The Lehmans would be yelling out names like Daisy or Molly, and a cow could be heard mooing in the distance. Sometimes up to six horses could be seen galloping down 17th Street. <laughs> Often as kids, we'd have to come inside early because a large horned bull was meandering through the yard. What really chafed my dad, though, was when the beasts trampled through the long, wet grass over the septic bed, sinking deep into the soft ground and turning the whole area into a swamp. Now, my dad was not especially patient back in the day. I guess a lot of it was sleep-deprived hours that came along with being a baker. Dad often commuted to far places to start a shift at four in the morning so folks could get their fresh bread. And he usually worked several other bakers at the same time. All this meant he usually napped for an hour or two before dinner. One drizzly afternoon, as Dad snoozed on his waterbed, a herd of cows came to graze on the septic bed. Sinking knee-deep, it didn't take long to transform the muck, the grass into muck. Mom thought this was something that should be dealt with sooner than later. Ralph, get up, the cows are back, she yelled. Dad groggily rose from his slumber. When he was awake enough to realize what was happening, he lost his patience. The angrier my dad got, the more the three types of F-words he used came out. The first was flippin'. This was mild annoyance. The next was friggin'. This was quite irritated. The last level, don't worry, was frickin'. This was DEFCON 1. When Dad caught up that afternoon, things went straight to DEFCON 1. I'm going to kill those freaking cows, he yelled. Dad jumped out of bed and didn't even bother throwing clothes on. He ran down the stairs to the basement in his white Mr. Briefs towards the large metal gun cabinet. Fortunately for the cows, we were more of a bicycling, hockey, and board game kind of family than a hunting family, and the only gun we owned was a pellet gun. Strangely enough, we did have a full-size gun cabinet in the basement that was always locked. Dad grabbed the gun and a can of pellets like a man determined to defend his home. He sprinted up the stairs. Dad cracked the barrel of the gun and chambered a tiny pellet. He stood in his underwear in the dining room. Patio door flung wide open, lifting the rifle up to his bare muscular shoulder. You're mine, frickin' cow, he whispered. <clears throat> he fired off a shot at the large bull who seemed to be in charge of the herd. <laughs> Went the pelican softly. Direct hit on the bull's rear end. The bull looked up momentarily from its grazing and swatted its tail over the spot where the bullet had hit <laughs> before returning to its meal. Dad got even more irritated by how completely unfazed the bull was. He chambered another pellet and this time took aim at a tiny calf. 
you're dead, frickin' calf. <laughs> the second shot rang out and struck the tender calf. The skin of this tender calf must have been quite a bit softer than that of the large bull, because it went berserk. It let out a painful moo and took off running back to the safety of the barn. The rest of the herd stampeded back alongside it. Dad lowered the air rifle and stood proudly watching the herd disappear. <laughs> Seeing my dad, the pellet gun at his side, standing in his whitey tighties there in the dining room, I couldn't help but think that maybe the Lehmans weren't that weird after all. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened to the Lehmans after they sold the farm. Danny got married and moved to Buffalo. He did swing by the house a few years ago and called my dad an old cuss word that was meant to be endearing. <laughs> he never did become a rocket scientist. As for Mr. Lehman and his wife, I'm sure their new neighbors could not possibly believe that weirder rednecks ever existed. That was fantastic. Man, Derek, thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Carrie, awesome. you're up. All right. I think a big round of applause for Carrie is normal. <laughs> I'm so excited you're here, Carrie. Thanks, Jacob. Um, you have the honor of being part of two of the most listened to podcasts that I've ever had the privilege to be a part of. Um, and I really encourage people to go back to listen to either the one that we did very early on, but especially the one we did with Nate. Yeah. Um, that was a year ago, right? Yeah, it was about a year yeah. ago. Um, you want to pull that mic up and then right up to your face. Mm. There you go. Perfect. You want to say something? Sure. There's two types of people. There are people that see a mic and they're like a magnet to it. And that would be your group. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Thank then you. there's Thank people you. like me and our tongue feels big and we get all sweaty and it's very scary. So I fall in that category, the shaky voice and all that. But it's a very good growing experience. Sounds good. Yes. So you have um, a couple of stories to share. Um, and I'm not sure how you've ordered this, but I know most of them also involve animals. Yeah. So tell me, tell me how you want to structure okay. this. And you have special things to mention, right? Yeah. So actually, I'm doing this because I really do appreciate Jake. But I also am part of a Toastmasters group. And I started this a year and a half ago to grow myself. And um, there is about, I think I read online, there's 400,000 people throughout the world that do Toastmasters. And it's a group that meets in our town once a week. And there's all different cultures and we learn so much but we've learned how to speak and you can take a different pathway and growth and you have to do different levels and I'm doing presentation mastery and by doing this I moved down a level so I'm really thrilled about that and yeah Toastmasters it helps you communicate it helps you become more confident to speak better to articulate well so that's I'm very thankful that I can do this to help me move down a level. So anyways, what I would like to do is I thought I would just start by telling about our little farming experience and how that all came to be. And I'm going to talk about our cow that we could never catch. And that's a whole story. And then if we have time, I'll talk about our surprise litter of piglets that we had last year and all the kerfuffle that went with that. 
So 19 years ago, we bought a grape farm, 12 acres, and we thought, my husband and I, Adam, we thought we would become grape farmers. No problem. It was a really big problem, actually. We put in, <laughs> we put in 100% effort and had 0% profit <laughs> after a year. So for the next few years, we ripped out the grapes. And a few years before that, my Oma had died. And I had spent a lot of time growing up at her farm. And she always had a wide variety of birds, peacocks, cockatiels. She had incubators, hundreds of laying hens. And... I thought, you know what, we have all this property, we should maybe have a chicken coop. And I started to feel a little bit like my Oma, like I was really nostalgic and I thought this would be good. So Adam nicely built a chicken coop and we bought this big thick book, Barnyard in Your Backyard. And we devoured that book, we thought, no problem, we'll start with chickens and we'll quickly move on to different animals. And so I, the chicken coop's all made, we're ready to go. And then I see on Kijiji, silkies are for sale. And that was like shouting my Oma's name. She had silkies. Silkies are fluffy birds with pom-poms on their head and feathered feet. A very unique looking bird. And when you see them, you just have to smile. So I saw that there were two male birds and one female. Perfect. So we did this long drive, picked up these silkies, put them in their new home, nice, fresh, clean shavings, fresh water, lots of food. I'm the farmer. I thought I felt pretty proud of myself, and I thought if my Oma saw this, she would think, way to go, Carrie. <laughs> we went to bed that night, and the next morning, I woke up, and I could hear this loud cock-a-doodle-dooling. I thought, what in the world is that? And then it hit me, two male chickens. <laughs> They're roosters. <laughs> How could I have <laughs> made such a terrible mistake? <laughs> and I felt really, really dumb. So, And then I thought about, we had a tenant living in our basement. What were we going to do about this tenant? And these roosters are like not being quiet at all. And it's super early on this Sunday morning. So I ran downstairs, ran into this chicken coop at this time at 6.30 in the morning. And I discovered that if I talked, they would be quiet. So I have this audience of three, and I'm thinking, what do I talk about? In the end, I just started singing hymns. <laughs> and so for a half hour, I stood there singing hymns, and then they were quiet. And then I thought, I'll apologize to our tenant after for this loud ruckus that our chickens are making. I saw him later on that day, and I said, you know, I am so sorry. I didn't realize that Mill chickens were roosters. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, what a blonde moment. <clears throat> and he said, you have chickens? I didn't hear anything. And our chickens were allowed to live because they never bothered him. <laughs> we ripped out all the grapes, and we put fence posts in, and then we thought, okay, we have five acres here. Let's go all the way in. And we bought cows in the spring and piglets in the spring. And we thought, they can live together in this field, no problem. And it actually worked quite well. We were, we were pretty surprised. Every year we had a story of some sort. Animals escaping, you name it, it happened. Adventures, one after another. And we really needed our whole family to be on board with this because so many things were going wrong. But we persevered until we got to 2018. So in the spring, we order from our man, this guy that goes to auctions, we order four cows. And so he said, oh, I got four perfect cows for you. I'm going to drive them over and we'll load them in your backfield. Perfect. 
what we didn't know is that he bought the smartest cow in all of North America. Like this cow was brilliant. The leader of the pack, just these, the rest of the three females just follow this cow around, no problems. This cow was all black, except for the face was white, and then it had two black eyes and two black ears. So when it looked at you, you just felt like it was reading you. And it, 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 was, it was a bit eerie, but we thought, well, it's just a cow, not a problem. All was well until the middle of November, and we have our butchering date. It's very hard to get your animals into a butcher because there's not that many butchers around, and there's a lot of hunters that come in with their deer meat and all their animals in November. So you have to book it quite far in advance in order to have your butchering dates. We do not like to have animals over the winter. It's a pain in the neck. So we had the butchering date, and we've had many mishaps of trying to load these animals onto the back of the trailer. We don't have a barn to corral them into. We're really actually not very good. I think every time that that man sees me text to come pick them up, he says, oh, no, here we go again. And every year, he charges it a little bit more because <laughs> we're such a pain in the neck for him. But he has a nice grin and, a, and he's always optimistic and he came and Adam said, you know what, I got this under control. We're going to build a little makeshift pen at the back of the field and so when he comes with his truck and trailer, we'll just load them up there and it won't be a problem. And for once, the pigs all went into the back of the trailer. It was like we were smiling, we were happy, cheering. And then we had the cows. And that leader cow, the one with the two black eyes, the black ears, and the white snout or face, took one look at that trailer and said, I am not getting in there, and just took off and broke down the gate. And the three other cows went following. And within 30 seconds, you're across the field. So instead of the kids going to school that day, we said, everybody out in the field with your rubber boots right now, we've got to get these pigs or these cows on the back of this trailer. We cannot miss this butchering date. We spent an hour trying to get these cows, and they're spooked. There is no way they're coming anywhere near us. We said, okay, can this? We'll try again. I managed to get another butchering date for a week later, and we said, we're going to get those, these cows. We didn't know exactly how to go about getting these cows because they're spooked, not trusting us at all. But we had a great idea. We thought, we'll call the Volks and they'll come after church, and your dad came, and he had a like, five-gallon jug of molasses, and I don't, molasses must be a real specialty for cows. I don't know either. And so we had all kinds of people outside with sticks, and we were trying to corral them into it. We thought, now we'll put them in the shelter and lock them up there. We managed to get three cows, but that leader, there is, like that cow was having nothing to do with us. So the next day, the truck comes again, and we ship off three cows, and I still have this one cow. Adam's starting to get a little bit mad at this cow because it's causing quite a bit of hassle. I managed to get, this was crazy enough, a butchering date for a few weeks later, and we thought, no matter what, if we can catch this cow and put it in a shelter, we're good. We just have one cow to catch. Little did we know that catching one cow is way harder than catching four cows. It was just an experience, but we could not catch this cow no matter what we did. We wouldn't feed the cow for a few days and then hope it would go into the shelter, and then Adam would just swing the door shut, the gate, 
So he would put all nice food in there. And then he would sneak around the shelter. And I would tell Adam, like, like text him where the cow was. And Adam sneaking around the shelter really slowly, slowly. And the cow's in the area. He can hear the cow. He comes around the corner. And he meets face to face. And this cow literally grins at him. <laughs> and takes off. So Adam's getting a little bit mad now. <clears throat> we... Adam starts to dress up in camouflage and he goes to the neighbor's house and he puts headsets on and my older son would talk to Adam and Adam would army crawl five acres to the shelter when that cow was near there and then he would just have to pull a rope. So the cow just looked at him and laughed and he was having nothing. After like spending an hour of this slow army crawl, and then Adam said to me, Carrie, drive me to the neighbors and I'm going to jump out of the moving vehicle. <laughs> so, because I think the cow sees me get over and that's how this is happening. So, okay, wh whatever. So we're desperate at this point. Adam, I, I drive Adam slowly past the neighbors and Adam does this, like this leap out of this moving vehicle and then slithers underneath the fence and slithers army crawl all the way there. And again, the cow looks at him and smirks. Now we're really anxious and desperate. And I said, Adam, like, what about our cousin, Al? He was, like, from Alberta, and I'm sure he has a lasso. He's cowboyish. So I text, called Al, and I said, Al, listen, we got this cow we can't catch. We need help, like, serious help. We're desperate. We do not want this over the winter. It's, it's a big hassle to have to water and feed a cow. So Al's like, I'll be over in a half an hour. Al comes, and he has his big buckle on cowboy hat, cowboy boots, lasso in the air. Our boys all go running inside and they put on their rubber boots. We don't have cowboy. And they put on their, cow they have cowboy boots or hat and we're all outside. And Al goes out there and I, I said, Al, like what happens if you manage to lasso this cow and you catch it? He said, well, basically I'll hold on. It'll be like water skiing on dry land. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Whatever you want, Al, but catch this cow. <laughs> so Al is out there for a long time, and we're all out there trying to corral this cow into a corner so that he can lasso it. My dad comes over. My dad is actually, like, he looks like a business guy in elder material and everything else, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's actually a farmer at heart, and he takes really good care of our animals, and he's helped with deliveries and everything else. So my dad comes over, but he's not dressed as a farmer that day. He's in his suede shoes and nice hat and coat and all that, and he can't handle it anymore watching us. Like, we're really despairing and not doing that great out in the field there. So he's like, that's it, and he climbs over the fence. He wades through this stream that you have to get to and he goes out there to help us finds a big stick and he's holding it and we get sl like slowly we get this cow into the corner real slow we're talking gently to one another all very very slow not to spook this cow and all of a sudden this cow just jumped and reared up and just took off towards my dad my dad has this stick and he's like father of four girls very gentle and he did this weird karate chop thing up in the air like we've never seen before. And my mom was howling like I've never heard her before. We were in pure, he broke the ice. Like all this tension was gone because we were laughing so hard at this maneuver. In the end, 
Al gave up, so did we, and this cow's still there. So I have another butchering date for the middle of December, and this has to happen. So it's Sunday after church, the day before, Adam brings his old work trailer. Oh, no, I should say one thing. There were times that I would see the cow go into the shelter, and by this time, this cow's really in our head. And I would, I would call Adam and whisper on the phone, the cow's near the shelter. So Adam would quickly dress up into his winter stuff, and he would go on the other side of the ditch, like through cold water, and he had a rope all tied up, a whole system, pulley system, that he would just have to tug it. And as soon as Adam would get there, that cow would leave. And we were distraught. Like, we probably shouldn't have been so distressed, but it was really taking all of our mental energy. <laughs> In the end, we had one butchering date, and by then, if it didn't work, that was it. So he moves his old trailer there, and he drills a hole where he thinks would be eye level, and he puts a lawn chair in there, and he's going to camp out in there with that hole. He could see through the hole, and he had the rope into the trailer. As soon as it was in the shelter, he would just have to pull, and that cow would be caught. And so I packed him his supper. He got bundled up for the cold. It's December, like, 17. It's really cold outside. We have all the kids go outside after and make all kinds of ruckus so that Adam could quickly sneak into this trailer. So we do our part, and then we know he's all good in there, in the trailer. And then I get a text from Adam. I made the hole too low. So he's sitting crooked in his lawn chair trying to peek through there. <laughs> it's going to be a long evening. So all night long, I texted, and Adam sat and sat. And I had my face plastered against this window. We had all the lights off in the house, and I could see where this cow was going. By this time, our whole church, I felt, knew about this cow. And we're getting texts like, Adam, spray on some bull scent and be attractive. <laughs> Have you ever thought about rolling around in manure? <laughs> All these different, and some people were even daring enough to root for the cow. And <laughs> we didn't appreciate that at all. But Adam sat out there for four and a half hours. At one point, he said, I get an excited text, all exclamation marks. It's here. I can, I can hear the cow. I can, it's, it's right near me. I know it. And I'm looking out the window, and I text back, Adam, it's in the corner of the field. What am I listening to? And then I hear, or I read, mice, mice. There are mice all over this trailer. So in the end, Adam got out of the trailer. The cow won. And the second he was over out, into the, out of the pasture, the cow went into the shelter and ate its food. So we lost, and we said, cow, you won. All winter long, we would feed this cow, but it would not eat. It was like on a hunger strike, and it would stand <laughs> right by our living room window in this barren field with snow all around it and just look at us. <laughs> like, talk about freaking you out. It was not great. In the very end, we fattened it up again for the spring and, and in the summer, and we managed to get it out, and it was like this huge cheer when that cow went onto the trailer. I said to Adam, we cannot eat this cow and we cannot sell it to anyone because we are going to choke on its bone. For sure it's going to have the last lap. So the best thing was just to sell it back to the auction. And normally cows are quite expensive and we thought, well, we'll probably break even, even though we had to feed it all winter. And we got, I think, $350 for the cow. So I said to our guy, I said, like, 
what happened? Like, that should have been a couple of hundred dollars more. He said, that cow just showed craziness all over it. Nobody was going <laughs> to buy it. <laughs> so that is our cow story. Yeah. Thank you. But, so that's one farm animal. But last year, we or two years ago, I was uh, just finishing reading our uh, Anna Green Gables. And I woke up in a mood. And there was a little bit of a miss along the property, and the rooster is nice and colorful. It's cock-a-doodling on the fence posts, and I said good morning to the rooster. And then on the, our pond, it looked like the Lake of Shining Waters. Like, I was just thinking, I love this farm. I love everything about life, and I'm walking from one animal to the next early in the morning saying good morning to all of them. And I get to our pig hut out there in the field, and a pig walks out, and good morning to the pig. And then, shocker of shocks, eight little piglets walked out. I didn't know our, we don't have a male pig, first of all, and I did not know that our pig was pregnant. Like, <laughs> unexpected pregnancy, we bought a pregnant pig without knowing it. I was so surprised, I went running into the house, and again, everybody out of bed, come. And they're, when they hear that, they moan and groan, because that usually means we have to go chase cows that have escaped. <laughs> We've had too many of those experiences. So we had these eight surprise piglets, and it was the most beautiful thing. They were out in the field, and they were, they're grass-fed pigs, and they would just follow their mom around like ducks. And so many cars would just stop along the side of the road and just watch these piglets. Like, it was a really beautiful sight. But then, as I started to do some research, I learned that they had to be castrated. So that was a really big problem, because <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I've attempted goats, but I was like, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know anything about pigs. And so I'm racking my brains like, we can't sell these piglets if they're not. I have bought. Well, anyways, that's another story. So I, I did not know what to do. But then it went into my mind. Becky Sutherland, Scott's wife, she used to work for a pig farmer. So I said, Becky, like, do you think you can help us castrate these male pigs? Oh, sure, Carrie, no problem. I haven't done it in 20 years, but it's like riding a bike. No problem at all. <laughs> These are the things that you need to get from me. Okay, no problem, Becky. So we got what she needed to do this awful deed. <laughs> but then we had another problem, and it's these piglets. They're, like, super hard to catch. All, like, there's eight of them scattered throughout five acres. And I've done enough chasing in my life, and I thought, I'm not doing this anymore, and our boys are done, and... So then I realized we have all the cadet boys sleeping at our house, camping at our house <laughs> next weekend. And I thought, we're going to get them to catch these piglets. <laughs> so we have 40 to 50 boys, I think 50 boys sleeping over. And I said, boys, like, we have a really important job tomorrow. We have to catch these piglets. They need to be sold now. They're getting old and they're weaned mostly. And these boys were like, no problem, Mrs. Radzma. We got this under control. I said, there's one problem, though. There is a problem. It's going to be hard to catch them, but we have one cow over there, and it's true. We had one cow that I think identified as a bull, because would, you would not <laughs> turn your back on it. And it had the tag. They all have tags, and this cow was 101. So I said, you have to watch out for cow 101. This cow is scary. You can't put your back. You can't turn away from it. And there's a lot of boys here, so a couple of people have to be in charge of this cow while the other people the other boys catch these piglets. So one kid is out there with this pitchfork, 
with somebody surrounding him and they just followed that cow wherever that cow went. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other boys are having the time of their life, like running in their bare feet, no shirt on, and they're just flying on top of these piglets as fast as they can. It took quite a while, but they managed to catch all eight piglets. And every time they would catch a piglet, they acted like they won like the Stanley Cup. <laughs> they would hold this piglet up and cheer. <laughs> and they were like so like bravo like it was macho to the extreme and they were very proud so we got them all penned up and then I called Becky I'm like okay Becky your turn you're on I never said anything to the boys about what was gonna happen because I wasn't quite sure myself I've never seen this before and Becky's like I'll be right over so Becky drives up and marches right to the back of the pig pen there and she jumps over the fence like and then she puts in earplugs, and that should have been our first sign, like, this is not a good thing. And she does her awful deed. Well, I didn't really watch, and I wasn't too disgusted, but these boys were turning green, they were retching, <laughs> gagging, they were horrified, their eyes were, like, wide open, some of them took off, some of them were, like, whimpering. <laughs> It was not great. <laughs> and so these parents, they came and were like, I said to Adam, like, do we tell them what happened here or not? But we got what we needed to be done done. And Becky was like, she wasn't rusty. She was probably, I think, pretty proud that she could still do this 20 years later. So we thought, you know what, we're just not going to say too much. Well, the next day at church, one guy came up to Adam and said, like, what in the world happened at your place yesterday? My boy woke up with nightmares. <laughs> and then I was watching, and some of these kids, they saw Becky, and they were like, hi, Mrs. Slingerland. <laughs> and they were slowly walking away from her. <laughs> Anyways, what had to get done got done, and we sold the piglets, and we were, we were really thankful for Becky's help in that, so... Anyway, Scott, you married a good woman there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you have any questions or if my time's up. I can do any story you want about an animal. <laughs> if, it, if anyone has any questions, we can, uh, we can open the floor I for that. I don't know how much time am I at. I saw it's you, but I didn't yeah, do yeah. it. That's, it's about 20 minutes. So. Okay, I'm good then. Yeah, Unless good. you want more, but. What do you guys say? One more story? One more? Yeah. Encore? Encore? Encore. Encore. All right, well, if you have one I'll more. I'll tell about what happened this past year. I have, like, really good goat stories, but I'll tell about what happened this past year. We, every year, we raise 35 meat chickens. So we buy them from a day old, and we raise them for a number of weeks, and then we butcher them. We have a whiz-bang chicken plucker. And <laughs> it's called the whiz-bang chicken plucker. So after you're done butchering them, you stick them in this whiz-bang chicken plucker, and we have a... <laughs> takes care of all the feathers and we have a fantastic system like with everybody working <laughs> anyways so my aunt who I love dearly and she said you know what I think I would like to have some meat chickens too and I said you know what I would like to do this so we had five I ordered five extra chickens for her that's what she wanted and so I ordered 40 chicken 40 chicks so this summer we got the box of chicks, and I counted out exactly 40 chicks. And then a few weeks later, they're too big for the one cage. You have to split them into two brooding cages. So I put 20 in one cage and 20 in another cage. A few weeks later, they're a little bit too big for that. Then they're old enough to go out in the field, and we have a pendant area. So 
we had about like maybe five or six birds die, which was a little bit higher than normal. And I said to Adam, we should probably butcher them pretty soon in case there's an animal around there. So we thought, we'll butcher them in a week or so. I was out there and I started to count them and there were, I counted 43 chickens. I thought, crying out loud, I'm not good with math, but this is uh, not very good. So I thought, I'm not gonna say anything because it's probably just me. That's a really hard thing to do is to count chickens when they all look the same and they're all moving around. I actually think it would be a good, amazing race challenge because <laughs> it's very challenging. So I didn't say anything. And the next day, Adam comes inside. And he's like, Carrie, you're not going to believe it, but I counted 43 chickens. How is this possible? We bought 40. A number of them have died, and we have 43 chickens. And we're like, this, you know what? We don't know. It must be us counting this. We'll find out when we butcher them. And so we butchered the following week, and we butchered 44 chickens. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I looked at my, my receipt, and there was 40 chickens that I paid for. My aunt that I wanted to gift her with these birds, she has a husband that plays a lot of jokes. So I texted him, and I said, listen, I think you're behind this. I think you threw some chickens in our backyard there. And he said, well, I guess you'll never know. <laughs> but she denied it. And so I actually called the feed store or the place where we got them. And I said, do you ever make mistakes? Because we have like 50 chickens and I paid for 40. And I know we only had 40 and we butchered 44. And she said, we never make mistakes. Like maybe one to two chicks at the most. And uh, anyways, that's our mystery from this. Every year there's something different. And this is this past year. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. I have just one question. Can you tell us what the chicken fucker is called one more time? Okay, so we rent it out. Actually, it's my son's. He, this is his little side gig is he rents this out. It's called the Whiz Bang Chicken Plucker, and it works wonderfully. <laughs> Carrie, that was incredible. I genuinely haven't laughed that hard in a long, long time. <laughs> All right, Scott. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. You oh. want to bring that mic up right up to right you again? Here. Yeah. You're just right. Exactly. So you've got a, you got a story prepared as well. Yeah. So a couple things. I, I I seem to find myself on the other side of a microphone fairly often. Um, the first wedding I ever emceed was actually Carrie and Adams. Uh, and I've done many more since. And the thing is, before any of these things, I always get incredibly nervous. So a lady from our church once said, oh, Scott, you've never met a mic you didn't love. And I'm like, no, I, I get like shaky nervous every single time. I hate it. And I think I know what it all stems back from. So I thought I, I would start by telling an embarrassing story about myself because that, that helps um, calm the nerves. <laughs> so um, 1988, I was in the first grade. And uh, it was my birthday month, which meant I got to have show and tell after my birthday. And I was very proud of this crayon set that I'd gotten. 
Um, it was a 95-piece Crayola crayon set, and it had a sharpener in the side, which was pretty cool. I was pretty excited about showing my classmates that. And uh, put it in my backpack, and then put my backpack in the cloakroom where it belonged. It was a rather old-fashioned school. And soon my name was called upon, and it was time for me to go get my, my crayons. So I was very excited, going to the cloakroom, opened my backpack, and the crayon case had opened up, and they were all just laying in the bottom of my backpack individually. And I sat there panicking, trying to get them all back into their individual slots, and was taking a long time. The class was wondering what's going on back there. So the teacher calls Scott. He's coming out. Yeah, soon. I'm scrambling, trying to get all the crayons in there. Um, and in the midst of the panic, I peed in my pants. <laughs> so I grabbed what crayons I could. And um, no one has ever heard this story before, by the way. This is the first time I've done it. So I grabbed a handful of crayons, the box, and strategically held them in front of myself. <laughs> and I went to the front of the class and I said... I got crayons. <laughs> and then I sat down. And then I raised my, raised my hand and said, I'm not feeling very well. And then my mom came and picked me and my pee pants up. And I went home. <laughs> I should also tell the story about emceeing Carrie's no. wedding. Absolutely. <laughs> so... Carrie asked me to emcee her wedding. How many years ago was that now, Carrie? 21. 21 years ago. And um, she also asked her brother-in-law, Eric. So we were going to do it together. And we were told uh, just before the wedding began that there was going to be a special guest. We did not know who this special guest was. We only knew that he was going to arrive at some point during the evening, and we were to introduce him. So the evening was going quite well. Um, we kept things simple, things were moving along, and suddenly Eric comes up to me with a bit of a panicked look on his face, and he said, Scott, the, the special guest is here. I said, oh, who is it? We thought it would be some long-lost relative or something like that. No, it was um, Spoofy the Clown. <laughs> we did not do, we did not know, we still don't know who got him. No, no one knows where this clown came from, who had rented him or procured him. <laughs> But he was there, and, you know, in hindsight, we probably should have just said, sorry, pal, not, not the right venue or something. <laughs> but being uh, an inexperienced MC at the time, I'm like, okay, um, here's what we're going to do. Eric, you go to the entrance of the gym. I will stand here at the mic. <laughs> then Eric yelled to me across the gym, hey, Scott, we have a special guest. I said, who is it? And Eric yelled, it's Spoofy the Clown. <laughs> In walks this washed up old clown um, that had probably been drinking heavily before he came. <laughs> and he comes in and he says, hi, everybody. More like, hey, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to sing a song for you. Now, at the time, Adam was working for CN Railroad, I believe. Yeah. Um, and he had made a song called Adam's Been Working on the Railroad. It's a cloud week, which I, this 
No, no, yeah, the clown had written the song. <laughs> and uh, sang it for us, the first verse. Adam's been working on the railroad. And uh, then asked everyone to join in. No one joined. <laughs> so then he proceeded to sing the next verse about Carrie. I don't remember exactly how it went. Then he recited the next two verses. He had given up on singing completely. <laughs> and walked out to just stunned silence. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my, my first gig emceeing. So, m much like Derek, um, I've also been writing a, a collection of short stories. And I was hoping to share one of those with you as well. And it actually kind of ties into some of the things that Carrie had been talking about. So I, I wouldn't mind reading that for you if that would be okay. Birds. <laughs> the Slingerlands were a bird family. It all started a long, long time ago with my Opa Brunicle. He had a smallish farm with pigs and chickens. It was a fun place that we loved to visit as kids. Opa also had an aviary there with cool silky chickens, pheasants, peacocks, turtle doves, and more. Inside the house, there were budgies, finches, canaries, and lovebirds. Not far from Oma and Opa's lived a family that sold all manner of birds, and I think my grandparents largely kept them in business. It was a very cool place, and Derek and I loved when our Opa would take us there bird shopping. Opa primarily bought birds that were native to North America, but at this place there were all kinds of cool birds. There were cockatoos, cockatiels, scarlet macaws, blue and gold macaws, African greys. There was basically no bird too exotic for this birdmonger to find and sell. He could regularly be heard assuring people that just because he didn't have a certain bird didn't mean that he couldn't get it. <laughs> this likely explains how he ended up in a federal prison for bird smuggling. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> Visiting Oma and Opa was fun, and I thought the birds were pretty cool, but all these birds had awoken something inside of Derek. He too wanted birds to become a big part of his life. His love for birds turned into an unhealthy obsession with birds. <laughs> I'm a middle-aged man with fairly neutral opinions on birds, but I can tell you I probably know more about birds than just about everyone gathered here. All the information I have on birds has been learned from Derek, whether I cared to learn it or not. <laughs> and it all started with two turtle doves. Opa let Derek pick them out. He gave us a large cage that we kept in our basement. The doves were calm, friendly birds, and they made soothing, cooing sounds. Well, it was soothing for a time. The problem was they never shut up. <laughs> My dear mother had had enough. Those birds have to go outside. My dad, strangely supportive of Derek and his bird friends, turned our shed into an aviary. The turtle doves had room to roam inside the warm, insulated shed with a heat lamp, and they even had a large caged-in area that they could fly around in attached to the shed. With this bigger bird run, there is now room for more birds, and it was quickly filled up with turtle doves, golden pheasants, ring-necked pheasants, budgies, and the like. Derek loved these birds as much as any boy could learn to love anything. The rest of the family wasn't quite as keen. You see, the rest of the family really wanted a dog. We begged for a dog on a weekly basis to no avail. We aren't going to have a dog while we have all these flippin' birds, my mom would say, <laughs> as if it was our fault we owned these stupid birds. As soon as we get rid of the birds, then we can get a dog. 
but mom knew that Derek would never give up his flippin' birds. Now, birds are not known to be terribly discerning creatures, so they actually seem to like Derek. <laughs> he made sure to feed and water them each morning before school. He had named many of them, and by now the birds had been with us for quite some time. They were growing strong. It was late fall, and we installed some heating lamps in our bird shed to protect them from the cold and to make sure that the water didn't freeze. Things were cozy in our little bird sanctuary. The birds were happy, and Derek's affection for the birds had grown strong. It was like one of those typical bonds that you hear so much about a boy and his pheasants. <laughs> I remember waking up in a especially cold winter morning. It was one of those nasty mornings where the cold seemed to cut right through you. Derek, faithfully as ever, made his way to the bird shed to check on his feathered friends as he did each and every morning. He opened the door to discover a shed full of birds that had frozen solid through the night. The heat lamps had shorted out, and every last one of the birds were deceased. What were once cute, fluffy fowl of varying feather were now lifeless, frozen former birds. None of the Slingerland children took joy in the fact that Derek's closest allies had all met their demise that fateful night. I remember seeing Derek's shoulders slumped as he made his way back to the house. His eyes were red and puffy. All of us other kids were eating breakfast. He walked into the house as he explained through heart-wrenching sobs that all his birds had died. Mom hugged him, and as her eyes too filled with tears. It was a quiet scene, with none of us other kids knowing what to say. We gave him our sympathetic stares and nods as he turned to go spend some time in his room alone. We shrugged our shoulders and returned our attention to the cereal in front of us. My mother was still visibly shaken with tears in her eyes. She wasn't really that sad about the birds. She was sad for her son who had lost so much so quickly. I looked at mom. She looked at me, searching for some light during this difficult time. I knew exactly what to say. Hey, Mom, we're getting a dog now. You promised. <laughs> Soon all of the kids were chanting, we're getting a dog, we're getting a dog. As Derek wept quietly in his room. Bentley arrived the following spring. He was some sort of a mainly black lab mix with some small white patches on his chest. My dad took me long to go pick him up. On his way to his new home, Bentley sat cozily on my lap while dad took the hilly route from North Lincoln back to our home in South Lincoln. Bentley apparently suffered from motion sickness and he ralphed all over my trousers. My dad's name is also Ralph, incidentally. I immediately felt nauseous as well, but before I could join Bentley in his vomitous ways, like a dog returning to its vomit, he had eaten it all back up. What a great dog, and what a touching beginning to Bentley's story. <laughs> Mom and Dad thought that the best place to keep Bentley at night was in our former bird aviary. <laughs> it was insulated, cozy, and it had a caged-in run for the dog to do his business in. Dad cut up a three-foot-by-three-foot square of old shag carpet for Bentley to sleep on. Bentley did not enjoy his nights spent in the aviary. Whether it was too far from the house or the place was haunted by the ghosts of pheasants and turtle doves, he whined and whined all night long. 
Finally, mom declared that the bird aviary was just not going to work for Bentley any longer. The dog was driving the Slingerland family nuts at night, and no doubt the neighbors as well. Dad decided to build them a doghouse in the garage. It was cozy. As much as Bentley had hated that shed, he loved his new home in the garage. As a final touch, Dad took the three-foot by three-foot square of carpet that Bentley had slept on in the shed and put it in his new home. Bentley loved that stupid piece of carpet. He would sleep on it at night. He would drag that thing around everywhere with him. I secretly wish that one day I'd be able to find someone that loved me as much as Bentley loved that carpet. <laughs> it started to get out of hand. He would be seen chewing on it, playing with it by thrashing it around. Bentley and that carpet were inseparable. Before long, Bentley started doing unspeakable things to the carpet. <laughs> things that are not to be brought up in polite company. Suffice to say, Bentley had developed a romantic relationship with the carpet. We all knew not to touch it. The only time Bentley would be comfortably separated from his carpet were on his Sunday morning hikes with Dad. Dad and Bentley valued the time they spent together on those hikes. Early every Saturday morning, Dad, with coffee in hand, would head into the garage where Bentley would be excitedly waiting for him. Sometimes Dad would head to the Bruce Trail by walking up the road. Other times, Dad and Bentley would hop in the car and drive over to the Rockway Conservation Area for a lovely hike along the gorge. Besides his strange carpet obsession, Bentley had another funny trait not often seen in dogs, the ability to smile. When Bentley was happy to see you, his tail would wag hard as his butt wiggled. He would curl his left lip into a weird snorting smile. It was certainly an endearing feature of his and a smile was a signature that Dad knew all too well as Bentley greeted him every Sunday morning before their walk together. On one particularly crisp winter morning, Dad walked into the garage. Bentley was on his carpet waiting for him, tail wagging. Dad couldn't be sure, but Bentley seemed a little off. He was happily waiting for Dad as always. His tail was wagging, just not quite as eagerly as it typically did, and his smile wasn't there either. Dad didn't think too much of it. He and Bentley climbed into the car together and off they went to Rockway Gorge for a brisk morning hike. Early on in the hike, they had developed a routine where Bentley would do his business right near the beginning of the walk. Dad patiently waited as Bentley assumed his business-making position. But this morning, nothing happened. Strange, but okay. They continued their walk together. After another minute or two, Bentley stopped again. Still nothing. <laughs> Strange, thought Dad, two false alarms, and Bentley was looking a little troubled. <laughs> he had anxiety written all over his face. Bentley would walk a few feet, squat, nothing. Soon Bentley wasn't even stopping. He was just walking and squatting simultaneously. <laughs> Not only was this strange and troubling, but Dad was starting to fear fairly self-conscious around the other walkers <laughs> who were staring at him and his peculiar squatting dog. Dad was no veterinarian, but he knew that this was not healthy canine behavior. This dog needed help, but before Dad could help him, he would have to diagnose the problem. Dad got down on his hands and knees and began to follow the dog at a close distance, giving it a good up-and-under look. This drew the attention of a few spectators <laughs> who would have preferred to mind their own business on their Sunday morning hike. But like a car crash, sometimes you just can't look away. <laughs> it wasn't long before Dad saw something. Something dangling out of Bentley's backside that didn't look like it belonged. 
Dad wasn't sure exactly what it was, but it had a look of familiarity. Dad instructed Bentley to stay as he crawled toward home to get a, uh, behind, from behind to get an up-and-close personal look. Bentley obliged, knowing that in his moment of vulnerability, he needed Dad's help in a bad way. The other walkers, curiously watching up until this point, quickly changed from walkers into runners. <laughs> they weren't exactly sure what was going on here, but they didn't need to stick around to find out. Dad was now face to butt with the problem, and he didn't like what he saw. What was protruding from Bentley was a strand of his shag carpet. Bentley felt shame. He had clearly taken things too far with his close companion, the carpet, and now only Dad could fix the problem. Dad didn't know exactly what the best solution was here, but he did know one thing. Veterinarians were expensive. He was going to have to handle this one on his own. Being a cold day, Dad was very thankful for the gloves he was wearing in this moment. After taking a deep sigh, he took hold of the carpet strand and began to gently pull and dry heave at the same time. The problem was the strand was not long enough to get a good grip. The gloves would have to come off. Inch by inch, the carpet strand was being pulled out. Bentley made for a great patient. He waited in stoic silence while looking back at Dad as if to say, we'll not speak of this again, will we, Ralph? <laughs> After some time, the strand was no longer coming out inch by inch, but foot by foot, till finally the last bit exited Bentley's rear-facing orifice. <laughs> to this day, Dad looks back at many great accomplishments in his life, but they all pale in comparison to the car carpetectomy he had performed on that <laughs> frosty winter morning. For his part, Bentley was overflowing with gratitude at what Dad had done for him. He jumped and snorted and smiled his biggest doggy smile. Eventually, Dad and Bentley made it back home. Dad took his seat at the breakfast table and shared the harrowing tale with his family while they all lost their appetites and asked Dad if he had washed his hands since coming home. Mom just stared longingly at the man that had just saved them hundreds of dollars on a vet bill. What a fine man. A fine man indeed. Bentley was the first of three dogs that the Slingerlands would eventually own. Each and every one of them would quickly make Dad their favorite. Sadly, Bentley would eventually meet his demise after getting a little too close and, close and personal with a Cadillac driving past the house. Even though he was only with them for a relatively short time, the Slingerlands appreciated the time they did have to spend with Bentley. In fact, just the other night I was telling my kids a story about our dog, and now my kids too want to have a dog. Maybe we'll get one, or maybe we'll just get some birds for now. <laughs> I had no idea that this podcast would actually end up <laughs> as funny as, as it has been so far. I'm actually crying. <laughs> Yep. So I, when I was thinking about this, I, um, I knew I wanted to have some, some funny stories, hence all you guys. Um, I also knew that each, each one of you guys have different stories of some really like uh, personal stuff with adoption and fostering. Um, and I think, did we talk about fostering? 
in the last podcast we did with with you, yeah, Scott. Um, and I want to do one with with you, Derek, and Val on on adoption in the future. So I'm really excited about that. But it ended up being that most of the, all the stories we told were purely hilarious. But I also wanted to. Um, I was thinking like, ah, I want to see if there are any some like any really powerful or meaningful stories that I could track down. And I thought of Tanner and Melinda. And so uh, we've done a podcast before on some of the stuff you guys done. I don't know if the stories that you're telling are particularly funny or not. Um, but I know you that you're an excellent storyteller. And so I'm really stoked uh, that you're here. Yeah, and well, we're, we're really great to be here, Jake. And uh, I am amazed that the common theme through the past handful of stories from each of you awesome storytellers has been animals and poop stories, which seem to uh, <laughs> seem to make some of the best stories. And uh, ironically, I do have a lot of animal and poop stories that make their way into ministry stories um, from around the world. My wife and I lead a ministry called Youth of the Mission here in Niagara, and uh, we champion and equip young people to be on the front line of missions uh, around the world. And so today's story, or at least the one I'll start with, comes from a recent outreach we did last winter in Mexico. Um, and ironically, and hopefully we'll tie them in really beautifully, there is uh, both of those sorts of themes that uh, come up more than once in, in today's story. <laughs> so I don't know, you want me to jump right in, Go Jake? For it, or Go Okay. For it. Awesome. Uh, I talk a little bit loud, so you might want to uh, adjust the volume as needed there. But um, so, yeah, as I said, we lead teams of young people around the world and across Niagara to share their faith with people, introduce them to Jesus, train them on uh, things that have to do with who we are, who God is, and what to do about it, the calling that he has in our lives. And one of those core callings is the Great Commission, Jesus's last command to go into the nations uh, and bring his good news to everyone. And so we led a team uh, to Mexico last winter in January. This team, we went to an area called the Westica, which is about a six-hour drive straight north from Mexico City, uh, really remote villages of people that have been there for a millennia, long, long heritages uh, in the people groups that are in these, in these villages, uh, so much so that one of the primary groups we, we worked with uh, were, what were their names, Melinda, the, the people group there, the language? Um, Nahuatl, the Nahuatl people. And they don't speak Spanish or English. They speak Aztec Nahuatl. And it is still an alive and thriving language. And we got to spend uh, four or six days uh, with this people. But we, we arrived um, into this village. There's one street right down the middle, and all the houses are butt up right against the side of it. Uh, and so we were staying right downtown, right in the center of town, of a village about maybe 200 people. Each village is maybe 20 minutes apart and looks about the same. The main highway goes right down the middle of, of town, and uh, we get to stay right against the street. The street is not quiet ever at all. Um, but we, uh, Melinda and I were staying in the second floor of one of the houses uh, with a single pane glass window overlooking the street in a 12-foot ceiling uh, bedroom. Uh, made of concrete, and so the sound comes in and echoes really nicely around, which is really helpful in the middle of the night or really early in the morning. And on one of our first few days there, we woke up right fresh to the loud cry of roosters. And so I sympathize with you, Carrie. These roosters 
were, they needed to be butchered, like right then and there. The second we heard them, it was like, something needs to die. This is not good. Um, and following the roosters was the gas salesman who would pipe down Main Street and yelling, gas, gas for sale. And after them, the milkman. And after them, the next salesman. And sure enough, a few minutes later, a, a, a hiss kind of goes off in the distance, a, like bang. And that really got us out of bed very quickly. We went downstairs and asked our hosts, what was that? What was that, that bang? Like among all the other noises and distractions this morning, what was that? And they said, oh, that's just someone excited that it's their birthday, it's a party. And this thing, it sounded like a small bomb. Like there was TNT going off in the distance. It wasn't just a firecracker. So we were, we were wide awake, fresh and ready to hear what our hosts had for us. Uh, today. We always want to work alongside local Christians and missionaries that are on the ground serving the things that God is doing through them so that there, there's a certain sustainability uh, to the work that we, we bring. But they are always really encouraged for teams uh, to come and serve in so many different ways. And our team was quite diverse. We had six different nations among the group of uh, 10 of us. And half of our team spoke fluent Spanish. And so that was a plus because otherwise we'd have to translate from English to Spanish, Spanish to Nahuatl. And uh, so at least we got to skip half that step uh, in, uh, among half our team uh, as we communicated with people. But our morning started with our host saying, we're gonna take you to church. Uh, we're gonna go to church this morning and just be an encouragement to the local body there. And they described to us a church that had sort of slumped in COVID as in Canada, we sort of experienced that a lot. And he said, our, our pastor left, and so we're just a group of elders that are kind of overseeing the church, but no one's teaching. No one's leading the teaching part of, of the service. Uh, we don't have kind of a gifted teacher among us, and the church has become really small. And so we thought, okay, well, we'll go, and we'll, be, we'll pray for you guys. We'll be an encouragement. We want to spend time with you and just be a blessing, right, to, to a, a church that would otherwise feel insignificant in the world of Christianity that is so big and vast, and, and to see that People would come from around the world to, to come and spend time with you, to, to hear your stories, to bless you, uh, is, is really quite a blessing. And it is to us when we have guests come from around the world in, in Niagara to our homes. And you can imagine what a blessing it is for them as well. And so we went to this church. And one of the funny things about outreach that often happens is on arrival, the church says, you're leading today. And so thanks for preparing a sermon in advance uh, and the worship and the scripture reading portion and all those sorts of things. You've got the wheel. We're listening to you. Um, but the time for church to begin arrives and no one has arrived. And I thought, okay, that's kind of hot climate culture. You know, we're in Mexico and, and everything. And so we waited around for a little longer as we frantically bought some time to, uh, to prepare more of a message. And more and more time went by and maybe five people came into this small church building. And I thought, that's kind of that's disappointing. You know, like, how big was your church? You guys have lost a lot of members. And they said, oh, we, we had maybe half the building full. And, and even then, some more people would come. But now we're down to, like, five people. And so this was really disheartening for them and disheartening for us to see a church in, in struggle, experiencing difficult times. And so I decided to give a message on boldness from Acts 4, where uh, Peter and John step out in great boldness and preach and see thousands come to Jesus. And I didn't expect that here in this village because there weren't thousands. There was maybe 200. But uh, nonetheless, I think this church needed a, a certain degree of inspired boldness in them. And so we talked about boldness. And I said, okay, now we're going to get up and go into the village and knock on everyone's doors and invite them to come on in. 
uh, I think from Luke 14, there's a parable uh, that Jesus gives about the wedding feast. And he invites people to come to his wedding feast, but no one arrives. They all come up with different excuses of reasons why they shouldn't come. And so he sends his servant out into the highways and byways to the hedges and, and fields and says, invite whoever will come in. And finally, the, the masses come. And I, I said to the congregation, this is what we need to do. We need to go out and invite those that, that will be willing to come. Uh, if those that are part of this congregation aren't showing up, then we need to go and invite those who aren't and uh, see them into this place of worship. And so we went. Everyone stood up, the five of them and the ten of us, and we took to the town and spent the church service walking around the village, uh, knocking on doors and saying, hey, what are you doing this morning? You want to come to church? Do you know about Jesus? And people said yes, and people said no, and wandered away. And uh, eventually we wound our way back to the church. Uh, now, the day before uh, caused us to not feel so good. And so we were, we were in sort of a state of our stomachs were hurting, Things were going so well. One or two of our team members had stayed back uh, from today's excursion because they were just uh, nondescript feeling bad and uh, could not leave the chair they had found themselves bound to. Uh, and the reason for that was we were at a, a house the day before, and they had served to us a traditional wedding uh, meal called a tamale. This thing, you might have heard of tamales at different Mexican restaurants. I had never really heard of a tamale. And upon witnessing the preparation of a tamale, I did not want to know what a tamale was. But this was the wedding feast version, and so it was quite large. It was maybe the size of half a dining table. Uh, meat packed with uh, dough, wrapped in a banana leaf, and boiled. And so really kind of an interesting, yeah, there's some tomato sauce and spices in there too. But I got to watch Abuela prepare this. And uh, I asked Abuela, okay, what, what part of the chicken are we using? She had them freshly butchered, probably at Carrie's place. <laughs> and uh, she said, oh, we put the chicken in. And I was like, great, okay, what, what part of the chicken? You know, like, do, do I cut some off? Do we set some aside for the pigs? And she grabbed that whole chicken and dropped it right in the tamale, beak, feet, and everything. No nail clipping, no none of that. Like, it was a straight chicken in a tamale. And so I was in the kitchen with another of our students, and I went into the dining room to the rest of our team, and I said, guys, like, you'll never guess what, what we're eating now. This is a real treat. You guys, you're excited for this, right? And they're like, what is it? And I said, it's tamales. There's chicken in it, and it's going to be delicious. It's boiled. <laughs> and uh, they're like, okay, so what's the catch? And I said, the whole chicken is in it. Like, everything you've ever wanted in a chicken is in it. And thank, we, with great thanks, you know, we consumed the tamale, tried to figure out who was getting the toes and who wasn't. <laughs> and so that was just a really unfortunate moment for us of like, you know, just diving into culture, that we are here to be a part of what these people uh, live and breathe and, and how they, they celebrate together and they wanted to celebrate us. So they offered us this, uh, goes down as one of the worst things I think I've eaten on an outreach, but wonderfully prepared by such a, a great family. So today, we were not feeling well at church. But, you know, we were out in the town, knocking door to door, and uh, inviting people to come and be a part of the wedding feast with our God. And uh, so some people came, and they came to the church. And the funny thing about the church is it was sort of like inside-outside, you know? And uh, there was, there was the, the stage and that sort of thing that was covered, but then it was someone's essentially front yard that the rest of the church was seated at, round little tables and plastic chairs. And beside us was the kitchen, uh, kind of half outside as well. 
and Abuela there was preparing some sort of lunch for us. Um, but beyond the kitchen was the barnyard where there were some pigs and dogs and whatever. But half of these dogs looked so mangy. Like they were, they had issues. One of these dogs was missing both of its front legs. So it was really like rough. And uh, then where the pigs were, there was a clothesline sort of strung back and forth and hanging it from it was this long kind of fleshy-looking string wound around and around and around the clothesline, drying out. And I thought, what is that? What is going on over there? Uh, but it was sort of distracting us as we're, as we're about to prepare this sermon. And uh, I realized in a moment that it was pig intestine hanging out to dry uh, among the mangy dogs just beyond the kitchen. And I thought, what's for lunch? <laughs> like, yesterday was an adventure, but today, where are we headed? <laughs> And, uh, and so we prepared a sermon. I gave the, the, the rest of the sermon. We went out, invited people, came back and sat around. And one of our students from Spain, she decided to speak in Spanish and it would be translated into Nahuatl. And beyond our, our understanding, because I don't speak Spanish, uh, she gave a message on the father heart of God and how God loves us like a father and wants to relate to us as a father and child uh, and, and gives us his whole heart as a father would uh, his own children. And it was a really impactful message, I imagine, for the people that came and for the, the rest of the congregation. Um, and then another one of our staff named David, he went up. Uh, he's from Jamaica, and his English accent, Jamaican accent, is hard for a Mexican to translate into Spanish into Nahuatl, but uh, he doesn't speak Spanish and didn't understand what Christina was, was saying, but listened along and then gave his message. And uh, crazy enough, what God had put on his heart was also uh, a message about his experience with the Father heart of God. And so this sort of like really unique tie-in of two distinct messages from two very different people uh, coming around the theme of the Father heart of God and how God wants to to love us and serve us uh, and relate to us as a father and child. So kind of a beautiful thing going on. And uh, David decided at the end, he said he, he gave an altar call. And he said, if anyone wants to receive uh, Jesus today and make Yahweh the Lord of their lives, like, come forward, we want to pray with you. And Melinda was sitting, my wife was sitting beside a couple who had gone through a really rough season of life. And you could kind of see it on their faces that, that there were things that were really difficult happening uh, in their life. And they put their hands right up, jumped to the front, the two of them. And Melinda and David got to pray for them and lead them to the Lord right there. And uh, it was an amazing, amazing moment. But Melinda kind of says to me, she says, Tanner, I, I feel like God is telling me that there's a third person that is supposed to give their life to the Lord in this service. It's not a usual thing that God gives us a number of how many people are going to come to Jesus in that moment. It's a bit of a strange thing, but it was really impressed on her heart that three people were to give their lives to the Lord today. And so it kind of nagged at the back of her mind. And as this is going on, David is, is off on the side now uh, playing with a little girl uh, and hanging out with her mom sort of beside and, and talking about the life of her daughter and all that sort of thing. And Melinda approaches the couple that just gave their life to Jesus and says, hey, I, is there anyone else that you know that would love to hear this message as well and give their lives to Jesus? Do you, can you think of anyone? And the couple said, actually, what's, what's been really wrenching our hearts recently, what's been so difficult is our daughter has been suffering with severe depression. And over the past few months, she's, she's battled with suicide and depression and anxiety, and it's just been flooding and flooding and flooding on her. And finally, we cried out to God and said, Lord, save our daughter. 
And in a moment, she was completely healed, sat up out of bed and began to be filled with joy and excitement and was like delivered and set free from this crippling depression that had lasted about half a year for them and their family. And the, the couple were so astonished that this had happened as they cried out to, to Jesus that they said, we need to go to church because we finally cried out to Jesus and it worked. <laughs> he does, in fact, heal. Let's go to church. And so they went and today was the day where we knocked on the door, invited them uh, to come to church. They came, heard the message of the gospel and said, we are giving our lives to Jesus. And so the mom said, our daughter needs to hear who healed her. And her daughter, where is she? Well, she was just outside playing with her daughter and David. Uh, and David was sort of, I guess, essentially distracting her and keeping her among the crowd. And so Melinda waves her in and we share with her sort of an abbreviated version of the two sermons that she had kind of overheard as she's uh, waiting outside. And again, was just struck with the love of God as our father and decided to give her life to Jesus there as well. And so an amazing moment of like, God, you are speaking to people. You are going ahead of us. You're preparing the way for us. And we're just, we're just your hands and feet to go and do the part that you have for us. But we're not the saviors in this, in this story that you're writing. We're just here to, to see what our, our dad is up to and participate in his business. And uh, so there, three people gave, gave their lives to Jesus. And Abuela, in proper fashion, She's so excited, and the church is as well, and we're all celebrating, and she brings out lunch, and it's tamales once again, and we found every excuse that we could to not try to eat these things, what was in them, how many intestines were involved, we don't know, (laughs) but that is one of our most recent stories of uh, God just working in amazing ways, putting together a puzzle that we couldn't have written ourselves, uh, that he's moving in and through the lives of people uh, and wants to use us as well. Cool. <laughs> Do you guys want to hear one more story yeah. from, from dinner? All right, go for it. Okay, well, the second story I have is quite less serious, but it's a funny story of Melinda and I. We travel a lot with what we do. And uh, we want to, to be in the nations, and we've traveled to maybe about 20 of them together uh, and gotten to experience lots of culture and have our favorite parts of different cultures and our worst critiques of different cultures. But it's all just making up this beautiful fabric of humanity around the world. And recently, in the summer for our fifth anniversary, we went to Italy. Has anyone been to Italy? Yeah. It's a pretty sweet country, but it did not start well. And uh, we traveled from Pearson to Rome, and we're going to spend the first few days in Rome. And we were so excited. The thing about Italy is that you have to book everything so far in advance. We wanted to, to really dive into Christian history in Rome, and there's a sizable portion of Christian history that takes place in and around the city and that still stands for you to be in. Uh, uh, places like the prison that held Paul and Peter before they were executed. Uh, you can stand in the cell that they were in. It's very likely that this is the place they were held, and it's just a powerful, powerful place to be and be like, God, you have, you have had amazing stories Uh, just written on the walls of these places. And so we were so, so excited. We booked our tickets months in advance. And one of the best tickets that we were so excited for, I called Breakfast with the Pope. And of course, unfortunately, the Pope didn't think that breakfast with me was quite special enough to show up. But it was a breakfast at the Vatican Museums in the garden, kind of at the Pope's house. So I was in his house and he didn't realize it. 
but uh, we got to eat breakfast there. And we booked that, I think, maybe in June. And we were going at the end of August or beginning of September. But when we were in the Munich airport on sort of a transit, or a, 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 what's, it, what's it called? A, a connect, connecting flight to Rome, we were offered a, an irrefusable deal. And we wanted to get the most out of this vacation, right? It was going to be quite expensive, and we were pinching the pennies to, to make it as awesome as it could be. And Lufthansa offered us $700 if we would just change our connecting flight from, uh, to be from Munich to Rome, to be from Munich to Zurich to Rome. If we bumped, 700 bucks richer. And we thought, man, this is too good to be true. Like, if we just won the small lottery, this is great. And so we talked with the guy at the gate, and we said, okay, what's the deal, right? Like, are we guaranteed to get to Rome tonight? I need, we need to get to Rome tonight, because we got breakfast with the Pope at 7 a.m. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, this is what I've been looking forward to, so we need to be there tonight. And he said, by what time? And I said, well, like, it would suck if we were there very late, but midnight would be like, I, I got to sleep a little bit before we take on one of the world's greatest museums. And, uh, and so he said, guaranteed, you'll be there tonight, you'll connect in Zurich, you'll head straight to Rome. We thought, perfect, let us in on this incredible deal. And so we did. We signed up, we sat back, and waited for the next flight to Zurich. And just maybe an hour, eh, Melinda, before that flight was about to head out, we looked at the tickets he had printed and guaranteed for us, and we realized that Zurich, or from Munich to Zurich was tonight, but Zurich to Rome was tomorrow at 3 p.m., and we would completely miss this amazing breakfast at the Vatican that I was so looking forward to. We became so frustrated. I was like, I have been looking forward to this for so, so long. You are not messing this up for me, Lufthansa. So we ran to the help desk, and the Germans, you know, they're pretty cut and dry. Like, there's no gray area. There's no grace. It's, this is what it is. Deal with it, buddy. And that was the face we were given at the help desk. And we were like, but it's our fifth anniversary. We're looking forward to this for so long. We've made these reservations. You got to reimburse us. And they're like, we've given you $700. And I'm like, that still doesn't cut it. That's not worth it to me. And, uh, and so we were so, so angry. But then we heard a rumor. After like, you know, playing around with, can we take a train there? Can we take an overnight bus there? Can we get there somehow? She had no solution. But she said, you're headed to Zurich and you can solve the issue there. And we're like, yeah, right, okay, as if. But uh, we heard a rumor that there was a flight leaving Zurich to Rome only 40 minutes after we would land. And we're like, okay, well, there's hope. Maybe we can get on that flight, even though I'm pretty sure that was the flight we were supposed to be on and it must have filled up miraculously uh, that bumped us to the 3 p.m. And so we made a plan that we would be getting into the airport, we would be pushing our way through all the people on the plane to get right off the plane. We just had carry-on, so it wasn't a big deal, and sprint our way through the Zurich airport to catch that flight and try to like fight our way on board, I guess. I don't know what you're allowed to do at an airport when it comes to the edge, but uh, so we did. We waited, and it was a stressful few hours, a stressful 30-minute flight from uh, Munich to Zurich, and when we landed, when we were about to land in Zurich, the, the intercom came on and it said, for those who have the connecting flight to Rome in 40 minutes, come to the front and we'll let you on the bus that will take you directly to the plane. And we thought, that's us. We're getting on that bus. 
there's no way they're not letting us on that bus. So we pushed our way to the front. We said, we have those tickets. And uh, they looked at them and they said, absolutely not. But we thought, okay, well, there's still a chance. There's still a chance. <laughs> and so they, those people, they got to exit first. But, you know, there's, they might be older and slower. And so the bus was still waiting there by the time we got down the ramp. And we went straight to the bus and tried to, like, sneak our way on. And they said, no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't do this. Caught us red-handed and we were pushed just into the general airport uh, area. But we sprinted. We made it our mission. We are getting to this plane and wound our way from one end of the Zurich airport all the way to the other and finally arrived just as like maybe the last 20 people were boarding. And I went straight to the desk and I said, please, you guys got to help us. You got to save our anniversary. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, in, in very Swiss fashion, and I think I've experienced this with more, more Swiss people than just these guys, but they are so kind and so generous and such a wonderful people compared to the black and white Germans that we had just been faced with. And I can understand why they want to remain so neutral and fine. And so this help desk guy, he says, sir, you guys have been bumped and we love and are so grateful that you uh, volunteered to be bumped and we want to do whatever it takes to get you to Rome tonight. We will help you as much as we can. And I was just like, thank you, sir. You're so great. This is awesome. And so he types away at his computer and the last, like, you know, now it's down to 15 people boarding and he's typing away and he's typing away and he says, okay, I think there's a chance that this might work, but we need to act quickly and get the VP down here. And I don't know if it was just a translation issue because I don't think the VP of Lufthansa was coming to serve me, but some guy in a golf cart five minutes later rolls up and uh, says the exact same thing. He says, sir, we are so grateful that you bumped for us. We love people that are bumped and want to serve them and give them as much as we can. I'm like, just quit the talking, pal. Get to work. I know you're so generous and kind, but let's get to work. And so he starts at the computer and he's typing away and typing away. And he says, there are four people who have not checked in for this flight. And you and your wife could take two of these four seats if they don't show up by the time those doors are about to close. And so we start praying for these poor people that they don't show up for their flight and that their anniversary is ruined and they don't get to see breakfast with the Pope. And sure enough, the doors are closing and he says, you guys are on. And well, no, back up a sec. He looks at me and he holds my tickets and he tears them in half. And I'm like, buddy, that's my only, like, that's either 3 p.m. or bust unless you tell me otherwise. And he says, you're on this flight in his great Swiss accent. And we're like, yes, praise the Lord. And so we get on that flight, fly in, and are arriving in Rome at 11.30, I think, 11.30. So it's getting late. But we are just so grateful, so glad that God had blessed us with this last ticket opportunity. And we thought, okay, the battle's won, right? Like, we're headed in. We can go to bed. We can find our hotel easy. It's right by the train station in, in downtown Rome. Uh, but we didn't realize that the Romans or the, the Italians still have a lot of Roman blood in them. And they're a fighting people. They're a warring people. And they, in the 21st century, have realized that they're not at war with anyone right now. And so they've decided to wage war on the tourists. And I'm convinced this is where the battleground is. And it starts the second you enter the Rome airport. Because this place has not a single sign. And they want you to get lost. So that you buy the most expensive Uber and get to your destination later than you wanted to. 
And so, you know, reading the pamphlets in the airport, we realized that the last train from the airport to downtown Rome, to the Termini station, was leaving at, uh, we arrived at 11.30, I think it was leaving at 11.40. And so it was like 10 minutes that we had to get from the plane to the train station, or we'd be stuck on like a $400 Uber eating up all that Lufthansa cash. <laughs> and we thought not in our lifetime. And so running through this airport, trying to find the, the, the way to go, there are no staff at this late hour anymore. And the ones that are there, they say, oh, you figure it out. You go where you need to go. You follow the signs. We're like, buddy, what are you doing to me? Like, tell me where this is. And so 10 minutes later, we find the train station and uh, are running up the ramp, hoping that it's late. And you can see kind of like a few people behind us that have figured out the same thing and are also like sprinting their way <laughs> through the, the stairwell and you know, skipping the escalator as many stairs as you can to make it go faster. And uh, the lady beside us, she says, if you don't validate your ticket, then they'll come after you and they'll charge you like hundreds of euro. And we're like, validate ticket? Like, what does that even mean? And it turns out you have to not only buy your ticket, but then punch your ticket twice, both off the plane or off the train and on the train. Otherwise, there's like huge fines involved. Again, all-out war against the Romans. And so we buy the ticket from the machine. We validate it at the, the, the ticket validation station. We get through the gate. We jump on the train, validate it again, and finally sit down. We're like, great. Oh, this is so exhausting. But we're having breakfast with the Pope, and there's nothing that can stop us now. And the train slowly makes its way up to Termini Station. 40 minutes down the tracks, it's 12.30-ish by the time we get off the train, and we realize there's still yet one more battle to get through. And you'd expect that a hotel that's positioned like literally two kilometers away from the front door of the Termini station should not be that hard to either A, find, B, get there safely, and D, just like wheel your bag there, because it's a city, and they should have paved sidewalks, right? So it's easy peasy. But the Termini station is a kilometer square, and so wherever the train drops you off from, you have to walk a kilometer, walk a kilometer, and then you're now at point zero to walk another 2k <laughs> to the hotel and so you know the, the the platforms are paved and the exit is paved but google maps is not really bringing up easily where this hotel is and between here and there is a new set of booby traps that we didn't realize we needed to cross called cobblestone <laughs> and all the streets and all the sidewalks are this wonderful uneven ground that wheelie bags just are not made for. And so we're carrying probably like 40 kilos uh, between the two of us. I'm carrying, Melinda's running. It's 12.45 or one o'clock by this point, And there's no lit streets. It's very dark, very quiet, very sketchy. And everything's very heavy. And I'm very tired. <laughs> but about maybe half an hour later, hey, Melinda, we make it. We find the hotel get in the door and we get to sleep and less than five hours later we're up for that glorious breakfast at the Vatican. Pope didn't show but breakfast was served and it was wonderful and we spent eight hours in those museums 
and I would recommend it to the world, but I would not recommend taking advantage of that sly Lufthansa deal. The $700 just weren't worth the risk. Wouldn't do it again uh, unless I'm on my way home. So that's our story getting to and from Breakfast with the Pope. Super grateful for all of you guys for coming. Um, incredibly grateful for all the storytellers. Again, I genuinely have not laughed that hard in a long time. And for all the people listening, um, many of whom have been listening for nearly three years and a, a large portion, all the episodes, I can't express how grateful I am for all of you guys. So cheers. I really appreciate you listening to this episode. If you found this conversation impactful and you want to make more of these interviews happen, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash chats into the sun. Every dollar I get over there goes right back into gas money and equipment costs and all the other things that go into running a podcast. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast and other projects I have going on, hit me up on Instagram at It's the Volk. Once again, thank you for listening.